Hey art enthusiasts, it's Mike Hendley. Welcome back to Drawing Inspiration. Each episode explores the artist's journey through interviews and personal insights. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 106, Drawn Together, Natural Pigments, and the Many Faces of Dylan Sarah. Hi everyone, and welcome back. It's been uh, a little while since the last episode, and uh, a few things are delayed, uh, a few things including this podcast. So I apologize for that, but this is what happens with life, right? We uh, we end up with these uh, these challenges, and we learn from them and move forward. And so for me, it's been around largely around my health, and I was struggling with some pain for a few weeks, and ended up in the emergency department of a local hospital for about uh, fifteen hours, which wasn't a pleasant exercise by any means. But I was there because of pain, which was all, which was also not a pleasant exercise. I am okay. Uh, it was a kidney stone, and I appreciate everyone's comments and uh, messages, and just it meant so much. I, I was so um, just taken aback by all the comments and and support that everyone's forwarded through uh, through Instagram, through email, and such. It's all fine. I've been through kidney stones before, and it was confirmed um, at the latter part of my fifteen-hour visit that that's. The problem I have, I say have, because I am still praying for safe passage, but I don't think I've achieved that yet. So there's some uh, follow-up required, but I am doing much better and happy to be releasing this podcast and getting back to creating art, because when you are in that kind of pain, it gets to a point where you're not interested in doing anything. I did sketch when I was in the emergency room, and uh, so that was helpful in between pain bouts. (laughs) But I did make sure that I brought my wallet, my iPhone, and my portable drawing kit, which I still have to do a YouTube video on. Uh, I'll try and do that this week. That's impacted a few things. It was obviously the podcast and the uh, drawing course that I'm doing for Etcher, which was supposed to start with a demo October 29th, did not go ahead because uh, of the pain and the issue I had. So I talked back and forth with Etcher, and they were extremely accommodating. And so unfortunately, we've had to push this out, my course, out till March. But uh, it means that uh, I can uh, just finish tidying that up and will be in perfect kind of shape for March with a go live with that. So I apologize for those who were looking forward to it in October, November. But uh, these kinds of things happen. And if you're hearing about this for the first time, I will include a link in the show notes to the uh, to the course, which is a focus on drawing nature. So I've been really excited about putting this course together. I've been trying to pull it together in a way that will help everyone. It's even though it's intended for intermediate artists, I suspect if you've drawn a little bit and you're a beginner, you could still learn something from it. So I'm excited about that. But once again, it won't be till 2024. And it will be around the March time frame. So as I get closer, I will talk about it a little bit more. And so thank you again for being so supportive. I really appreciate uh, every single one of you for being part of this journey with me. And i just constantly blown away by the art that you're creating and those that are inspired to take this journey on themselves as well. And so I'm, I'm very glad to be part of this and that we have this chance to uh, to interact. So the other thing I've did recently, uh, which didn't go as smoothly as planned, because once again, (laughs) I ended up in the hospital. But I was kind of struggling with uh, my newsletter. My newsletter uh, was hosted on ConvertKit. And so I was I've been using that for some time. 
it's it's a great platform, but I kind of struggled with what do I post on uh, through ConvertKit to my newsletter? What do I do on Instagram? What do I do on my blog? And so it was all kind of challenging. And then I've got a Patreon, and how do I uh, deliver content to my Patreon subscribers? And so I'm trying to rework it a little bit so that I can produce more content more effectively to more people. And so this would be a mix of people who are um, receiving it for free and those who want to pay a little bit more to get uh, some special kind of content, behind-the-scenes content, tutorials, and things like that. So what I've decided on is uh, Substack. So Substack is a newsletter platform, but also kind of a social media component. So there is, I can push newsletters through it, so it'll end up in your mailbox. So if you were a subscriber to, to me, uh, I moved all the subscribers over to Substack, and I haven't pushed out a newsletter yet, but when I do, you can continue getting them for free, or you can choose to unsubscribe. I hope you'll stay, <laughs> but uh, the intent is that you'll still get them by email. But if you go to the Substack site, there is the opportunity for me to share notes, and notes look more like a Twitter or an Instagram post, where there's maybe an image and maybe some text. Maybe I'll share someone else's note, and so that's an interesting kind of interaction. And then there's chat as well, and chat is more kind of a, you know, I may pose a question and get some interaction back and forth, and they're very focused. And for all of this, I can decide what is free and what is paid. So the newsletter will still be free. There may be elements in the future that I decide to make paid, so there may be a section that you get to that is paid. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about notes and chat yet, but I think I'm going to get to a point where some of that is paid as well. And paid on Substack is $7 US a month or $75 US per year. So there's a bit of a discount when you sign up for the year. And then there's something called a founding member. And a founding member is $140 per year, but I will send you an 8x10 watercolor of, of my choosing, probably an animal, uh, but it will be an original that I will send. So if you are a subscriber for the year, I will send you one of those for each year that you're a subscriber as a founding member. And so it's a fairly simple kind of uh, paid structure. And I think the other component as I start to build up more people, especially in the paid tier, is I'm going to do one or two Zoom calls a month. And uh, I'm gonna use a system called Luma, which allows me to kind of create the entry and invite all of the paid people to it. And it'll be a chance for us to sit down through Zoom for an hour and a half and paint or draw together. So I'm not going to really be doing a course as much as just chatting, uh, seeing what you're making. We can just sit and create together. And that's my intent with these Zoom sessions. So uh, because I'm just starting out, I only have one paid subscriber at this point. So I may do the first few for everybody. Uh, and then as I transition to getting more paid subscribers, then I will uh, limit it to that. But I think I may try for a month or two, especially before the holidays, to do some that are completely free. And you still will have to register, but it will be free. This means that I can take the money that I was spending on things like ConvertKit and move it towards Zoom as a platform. So I'm trying to, once again, understand where I'm spending my money and where I'm putting my attention. And I've, if you were a Patreon subscriber, I appreciate everything that you've done to this point in time. I did move your emails over into Substack. What that means is uh, there's no other um, charges that are going to hit your card for being a Patreon subscriber. But uh, and now you can decide whether you want to stay at the free tier or go to paid. Uh, that's really up to you. But I'm just thinking about how do I 
share my journey? How do I share my art in a way that uh, is compelling in the sense that people can enjoy it, but it's also inspirational in the fact that uh, some people want to take it on and try it themselves or may want to apply it to what they're doing or what they're making. So I I think this will make sense in the long run. And uh, I just haven't had enough time in the last uh, six weeks to really (laughs) push a whole lot out just simply because of my, uh, my health, health challenges, but I feel much better now. And uh, so I'm excited about uh, what I can do in the next few weeks for you. The next thing I wanted to mention, and this is exciting as well, is the next version of this podcast is going to be on YouTube. So I will be releasing, I've already recorded the next two episodes, and they are both video podcasts. So what that means is if you're listening to me right now through an audio podcast, that will continue. So uh, this isn't going away. It just means that the audio will be from the YouTube video. And I'm trying to be mindful as we're recording what people can and can't see in the sense that we have some people who are unable to see. And so I want to make sure I accommodate them and not focus strictly on a video experience, but also those who choose to listen while they're out doing other things and prefer the audio version. So I'm mindful of that as we're recording, but um, the next two podcasts will be on YouTube. I don't know if I'm going to do this for every single episode, but uh, the next two for sure, I say next two, I've already recorded two. There's two more being recorded in the next week. So there'll be four video podcasts coming. I'll be kind of releasing those on my YouTube channel. There's a link to it in the show notes. I'm easy to find. That's where you'll be able to watch it. I'm going to try a few different formats. There'll be some experimentation. So I do encourage feedback on both the recording and, and how it looks when you when you watch it and uh I'm, you know i'm interested in in hearing what people think i think for some of the podcasts i've done i think video would have been helpful in showing some of the tools and some of the works and things like that so uh, we'll see where this goes and with that i'm also uh, i think taking it back a little bit as a matter of frequency to maybe monthly for the podcast rather than every two weeks just to give myself a little bit more room to create and do other work. And uh, I still may release some podcasts in between, some episodes in between. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet, because one of the challenges with the YouTube video is I'm not going to have this (laughs) that you hear right now, this 10 minutes. You're not going to hear that at the beginning. And so it's going to go straight into the interview. So I'm thinking about, do I add that to the audio only, which I think I may do, or... Do I take that 10 minute and turn it into something that I push out through Substack, which I can easily have kind of a quote unquote audio podcast there. And maybe I do that once a week or once every two weeks and I just chat for 10 or 15 minutes. So I I may consider doing that as well. So I'm just kind of throwing out these ideas, throwing out these thoughts. But um, for the YouTube, there won't be 10 minute intro anymore as a matter of the podcast. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do in the audio yet. I think I may still do that, but we'll see. I think Having that kind of reflection on the last uh, period of time and looking forward is always a helpful thing, especially if I'm talking about, you know, the Etcher course coming out or another course or another experience that I need a way to kind of share that with you beyond, let's say, a newsletter. So still thinking it through, you may see a couple of YouTube videos come out within a couple of weeks of one another. I'm just trying to push these out. There's a very tight schedule around one of them. And uh, so keep an eye out for that. Subscribe to me on YouTube. And you'll also see it appear here. So when you see the audio here, you know the video will be up, if that's helpful. So I think that's it for as a matter of updates. Once again, I appreciate every single one of you. 
Keep tagging me, keep sharing your art, and uh, let's jump into this interview. In this episode of Drawing Inspiration, I sit down with the talented Dylan Sara, whose passion for portraiture breathes new life into the art form. We delve into his artistic roots, tracing back to childhood drawings at the kitchen table, and follow his journey through the challenges of architecture school to his inspiring travels in Europe. Dylan's dedication to his craft is evident as we discuss his return to art, focusing on the human face's intricate beauty and the stories each portrait tells. Join us as we uncover the depth and dedication behind Dylan's portraiture and his unique approach to combining traditional techniques with modern technology. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Dylan Sara. Hi, Dylan. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to be here. It's nice to have you on. I have been... I feel like I was t- telling you this before we started recording. I feel like almost like an old friend because I've seen so much of you through your live draws and all these wonderful events that you do, and uh, you've not seen me, so I've made yeah. it a bit one-sided. <laughs> yeah, I, I have listened to you, and um, I have seen your posts on on Instagram. But it's nice to actually um, to see your your moving, joyful face to, <laughs> Thank to you put so alongside much. that voice. <laughs> <laughs> You're too kind. I uh, I really wanted to have you on because I think what's what really has captivated me about you is obviously you're a joy to listen to and a, a joy to watch, but I shouldn't say but. In addition to that, you're a wonderful artist working with portraiture, which is something that I really, I've tried a few times, but I've kind of kept away from it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I want to pull back the curtain in it expose you and in in that way expose it to me and expose it to the listener as well about portraiture and and the way that you're doing it so i really wanted to have you on to kind of talk about this in the way that you're not just doing it but you're doing it using technology and empowering others through things like zoom and patreon and youtube and everything else so i'm so thankful that you were able to put aside the time to join me cool my pleasure thank you for for having me here so i want to ask you and i wanted to ask you this watching you on youtube what were you like as a kid were you a creative child beyond, you know, writing or coloring in books or writing in walls or doing whatever kids get into? Uh, were you a creative child? Yeah, well, I, I always enjoyed drawing. And I remember that in in the kitchen, which is like the, the heart of the household, we had this little wooden table next to the big dining table. And when one mum or dad would be cooking and busy in the kitchen, I'd often be sitting drawing in the kitchen. And so the the art supplies, the crayons and paint that was right there in the kitchen. And I remember it being very present. And I remember at school that when we would have written assignments that they would, in my case, often be accompanied by big art projects. <laughs> so um, my my English lessons and exercises um, would usually stop after one minimal sentence and have a a full page drawing um, that would be part of the what I would produce. So yeah, I I definitely I always enjoyed drawing and um, sculpting stuff with uh, Play-Doh or whatever it was. Um, So yeah, I I'm fortunate to have grown up in a household that was very conducive to to making things and being creative. I, I think that's wonderful. And it's, you know, it really highlights the fact, and, and I see it so much in your work, that you're really a storyteller in what you do. And uh, it, it's great to see kids that really embrace it because it, we need more stories. And yeah. it's wonderful to see the kids kind of translating that into something that they can take take on, whether it's drawing on a board in a kitchen or, or sculpting something out of Play-Doh, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting now because I have three children between the ages of five and 10. And I endeavor to offer that same kind of experience. Like our kitchen table often has the pencils and crayons and everything on it. And and they don't all want to use it all the time, but it's it's there and it's accessible when they want to. Yeah, and just to try and create a space where they can explore and try things and be able to do that is nice to be able to pass that on. Absolutely. And uh, it's funny you mentioned about the, the kitchen table and the crayons because I, so you're, you were born in Australia, but you're living in Germany now, Yeah, that's correct? Right. Yeah. And I don't know if you have restaurants like this. We have a few here that, uh, you know, the, the, either the placemats are paper or the whole, the whole cover of the table's paper and they've got crayons. Yeah. yeah. And it is so much joy for me when I go into a restaurant. It's like, okay, kids, get out of daddy's way. <laughs> he's going <laughs> to draw something. And my kids are, you know, 17 and, and 20, almost 21 now. But um, I, I love restaurants that do this. So if you if you, if you you are listening and you have a restaurant, put out some crayons and yeah. paper. <laughs> yeah, it's great. We, um, we recently ate out and... Um, as the kids are waiting and it's often like oh how's it going to be with the kids yes and then they they brought out these um big pieces of paper that had some activities on it and some pencils so it's like oh that's brilliant that's um i also have fond fond memories of such things and do your children draw along with you on the restaurant table they they used to not so much anymore i mean with covid it's it's um it's been slower obviously but um and and the kids have other distractions right now so but mm-hmm. they they used to quite a bit and that they would be like, oh, geez, dad, do you have to do something like that? <laughs> something also detailed and difficult, but they both love creating and, um, yeah, nice. which is, which is wonderful because they're both into, uh, kind of STEM, right? So one's in coding and the other one's in, in chemistry. And, um, I can see the creativity in all of that and what they do. So beautiful creativity is more than just visual arts and writing Definitely. and yeah. music. Yeah. So, I got distracted there. We talk about kids, right? That's (laughs) kind of like, uh, but I wanted to kind of explore the origins again. And I'm curious about, you know, you do a lot of portraiture now. Mm -hmm. And back then, was that, were you drawing the people in the kitchen? Did were you influenced by comics or movies? What was your, uh, because typically as kids, that that's what hits us, right? Yeah, yeah. I watched a lot of cartoons and I loved comics. Some of my earliest drawings that I remember um, were in, like in first grade at school, and they were definitely imaginative, uh, no reference. I, I had this really distinctive hairstyle that I remember I learned from one of the kids in my class, and then from then on, all of the people I drew had this like jagged hairstyle. <laughs> and um, I also had a, quite an interesting stylization for how to draw a tiger. And that would be like an example that there would be like um, once there was a tiger and then I would do a full this full page tiger. And um, <laughs> and then as things progressed, I remember my one of my aunties gave me a, a Disney book, um, How to Draw Donald Duck. And and that was the first time I think I'd really had this kind of uh, strategic breakdown of like, this is how you do this thing. And until then, it had always just been whatever came from me, I guess. And, and trying to learn, but it was like this the strategic approach and explanation of like line weight and the way these different shapes work. And so that was a bit later on. And, but I remember really studying that book and, and drawing from those things. And I think after that, I started to draw from comics and I would copy a lot of things. And, and there was this big kind of a, 
transitioning from pure imaginative drawing to drawing from from reference, I guess. Yeah. And so it sounds like that stuck with you. Is that true that as you go through, I'm not sure the levels of school in Australia, but as you're going through school, that uh, that stuck with you as you went into uh, finish high school and go into yeah. any kind of post work? Was that like, did you ever veer from creativity or was, was, was that your thing? <laughs> well, I almost, um, in school, I had a teacher. So my parents noticed that I stopped drawing and I had this, my, my table in the kitchen where I'd always be drawing. And they said for a week, I didn't draw anything. And I'm like, Dylan is, has something happened? You're not drawing. And my teacher told me to stop drawing because during her class, rather than focusing on what she said, I was drawing. I think perhaps, I remember in some situations, I would finish the work and then I would get busy drawing. I was kind of like, do the work so I could have dessert and, and draw. <laughs> and um, and thankfully, my, my parents caught on to it and they they had to talk to the teacher and they were like, don't tell our son not to draw. And that they said, to, they came to me and were like, you keep drawing. If you want to draw, then draw. And so they were super supportive in, in that sense. Yeah, and the towards the end of high school, the, the art room was really... It was like my my favorite place at school. I would often spend the lunch breaks in in the the art room and had a really wonderful teacher, Mr. J. He was so good. He would often just be standing doing his own paintings, and when we needed, if we had a question, he'd come and help us. But otherwise, he'd actually be making his own work. And I think that was um, he really offered a wonderful creative space for us to try things out. And yeah, I'm thinking. Thinking back on it, one of my we had like two final projects for school, and one of them was this um, a, a giant portrait which had been uh, a Superman inspired by an Alex Ross painting, which was a comic cover. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his style, but he had this kind mm-hmm. of realism, which was really interesting in comic covers, which I I hadn't, which which really struck me, and I I did like a, a master study of of his work for my one of my final projects at school. That's incredible. Yeah, the other thing I did was painting the set for our play, our theatrical performance. Um, the set design was my other um, second project. So quite quite different projects. But What yeah. was the play? Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas. Okay. Uh, you mentioned some interesting uh, names there and the play as well. And this is my opportunity to remind people that I have really good show notes. And so I will link to everything, including any occurrence I can find of the play. <laughs> Not that actual play. But anything that uh, Dylan and I talk about, I will include in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you're out preparing for fall or preparing for spring, depending on where you are in the world, or you're out doing a run, know that the show notes will be there for you and you can follow up on some of the things that we talked about. So Dylan, I wanted to extend that further. After your high school, did it become clear to you that you needed to go into something creative as as either further education or did you go right into uh, working? Interestingly, I was convinced I didn't want to be a struggling artist, which for me meant, although I love art and it's my favorite thing at school, I don't want to do art. And my dad, who I love very much and has taught me a lot, was self-employed and I kind of watched him struggle. He's a photographer and which um, and focusing on portrait photography, which I think definitely had a big influence. And he taught me a lot more recently, actually, once I really started taking an interest in it, um, just about the way we can perceive things and make images. Um, So I learned a lot from him, very thankful. But I remember growing up, kind of seeing seeing how hard it was for my dad to be self-employed and as a photographer. And 
And I was just like, I don't want to be a struggling artist. So even though I loved it and it was clearly my favorite thing, it's like, this is not what I'm going to do. <laughs> and then my art teacher actually, he recommended that I, I try to do something creative, even though it's not art. So he recommended industrial design or architecture or something like that. And I actually went into studying architecture after school. And how was that? <laughs> so transitioning from what you were doing to the architecture? Yeah, it was, I really enjoyed it. I think I had no idea what architecture was going in. <laughs> it was just like, oh, architects draw. <laughs> right. So, and it was it was really interesting because it was, my, my favorite part of architecture was the, we would get these really creative briefs, which is like a gift for architecture students. It's like, here, redesign the West Wing of the art gallery. So these are the kind of jobs that you don't necessarily get starting out. Um, but we, we had really cool briefs and then we would get to, I think something that was really wonderful was we learned to conceptualize things. And it's like, oh, how can I take some, some kind of seemingly random experience that I had on the street and incorporate it into a big philosophy that's informing the design of this building that I'm drawing. Um, so that, that, the, that conceptual stage, the beginning, was my favorite part. But once it got to technical drawing, and it's like, you've had a good idea, now you've got to make this building stand. That was so hard for me. And I actually, like, I failed. And I was just kind of ready to give up. And then I went to Europe. <laughs> so I, I was kind of like, I felt like, oh, this is getting so hard. I'm kind of over my head. And, and I had friends that had taken like gap years and gone traveling and they came back and were really motivated and inspired by what they had experienced abroad. Um, so then I was like, oh, maybe if I go traveling, then I'll, I'll be able to be a better student. And, um, and that was the thing that took me away from Australia to, to go and see the world and get inspired. Interesting. Mm. Uh, it's funny as you're talking and right behind you, this is the, the same view that people have that they see you in YouTube as well. And I assume zoom too. Um, all, all I can think about in the way you're describing this and, you know, architecture and, and heading off to Europe is is maybe something about the many faces of Dylan being in the title, because <laughs> it, it really is a, it seems to be a theme for your life. Um, all these faces and all these opportunities and uh, yeah. uh, these different kind of, uh, um, and, and I don't think you've ventured that far. I mean, I've had people on talking about architecture before and it, it, I imagine it must be challenging. I went through a mechanical engineering program and mm. it wasn't what I expected. Mm -hmm. How much did you get into the program before you, before Europe called your name and you, you, you went, did you finish? You didn't finish the program then, right? You were. Interestingly, <laughs> um, I didn't, it was a five year course and I did three and a half years. And in the final half year, I failed a couple of things. One of them was Japanese because <laughs> we had to do some electives, which are nothing to do. Like you, you got to kind of broaden your experience and knowledge. So it's like, do something outside of your faculty. I was like, Japanese would be cool. I like, I like anime and manga. So I'll do Japanese. And I failed. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, um, I, I just couldn't get my head around um, kanji, the, the complex uh, script. Yeah, so that... And I also had a technical drawing um, class, which I failed in that semester. And it was just kind of like, oh no, I don't, this is like, I don't think this is it. And then I had that idea, uh, looking back and it, it's like to jump ship and go traveling. <laughs> but at the time I was like, I'm gonna take a year off and, and get inspired and then come back to it. Like it was planned all along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It was because that was, yeah, while I was gone. So I ended up staying away longer than the initial year that I was planning. I was gone for about four and a half years. And during that time, I kept postponing. I, I like was in contact with the university saying, oh, I'm going to be gone another year. Oh, I'm staying a bit longer. And eventually they're like, are you actually going to come back? Are you going to finish this? And then um, the course structure changed. And when it changed from a five-year degree to a three-year plus a two-year master's, and I was like, oh, I've already done three years. Like now, now without having to do any work, I've kind of finished it. So when I did return to Australia, I just had to do two additional courses because I had failed to. And, um, and then I, I actually have a, ba- a Bachelor in Architectural Studies. Awesome. So um, I did wrap it up. And so amazingly, I didn't have to do, because I thought I'm going to have to do another like two and a half years when I go back. But then I only had to do one semester. And I did. Yeah. It's good that you got them to change the program for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. That's influence. And so you finished the program eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were you doing in Europe? Were you still drawing? Were you still creating? Yeah. I, um, so I remember in my studies, interestingly, I got really into animation and like 3D stuff. And I was, we had like this CAD cave where we'd be sitting in the computers. There was no natural light. And one semester, I, we had to do a 3D model um, in 3D Studio Max, which I think doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it's all a lot easier than it used to be then. Mm-hmm. But I had found this online resource where you could download 3D models and incorporate them into your your computer 3D world. And I did my, my house design, but I found all of these Star Wars models that people had built and made available for free. And so I had my building, which was just like a, a, a two-story apartment building, like a, a kind of... Um, uh, what are they, what's it even called in English? Like a, a row house? Like a townhouse or... Yeah, yeah, house. like a townhouse. Yeah. And I I had incorporated all of this Star Wars stuff into it. And so it had like the... the I, I was so into it. I, I was living in this dark cave just on the computer all the time making this um, architectural project into a Star Wars film. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Oh, sorry, I, I'm totally off track. Well, where, 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 why did I start talking about this? So... When you were in Europe for four, four and a half years, were you still drawing? Were you still creating? Right. Yes. I remember. So that's why I was talking about this because I would get up and like, oh, stretch from the computer and there was a whiteboard and I would draw stuff on the whiteboard. And um, at the time I had a very active dream life and um, I would draw stuff from my dreams on the whiteboard while I wasn't doing this computer stuff. And, And those things, as I was traveling... I remember I had a sketchbook with me, which is probably here somewhere, uh, which I still have. And I would sometimes draw stuff from my dreams or I would draw stuff that I saw while I was traveling. And so I didn't have a a really big focus on drawing, but it was just like kind of a companion that was sometimes there. And sometimes I would like have the urge to draw. I remember when I first came to Belgium, um, the first thing I did was go to the supermarket supermarket and buy a a sketchbook. Um, And then I... Even though I didn't feel like it was a focus, it was just always with me, and I would, I would sketch stuff as I travelled. Do you still dream and sketch them? <laughs> I wish I had time. Um, <laughs> I I do have dreams, but now usually when I wake up, I am uh, forcefully removed from the dream world by my children, 
Um, and there used to be this beautiful waking state where it'd be like not quite awake and all these vivid things would happen and I'd be like, wow. And now it's kind of like, oh, I think I had a cool dream. Now I've got to get my kids dressed yeah. and fed yeah. and cleaned and all this stuff. So maybe, you know, that maybe it will come back to to that someday. I've had a couple of weirdly weird dreams and I, I told my wife and <laughs> they're very odd, right? It's not... <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the dreams, but they're really odd. <laughs> and she's like, I, I, I'm not sure you should tell me your dreams anymore. <laughs> she's just like, you're, you're weird. It's too weird. Because uh, I had like two days in a row and it was like, oh, man. I, and the problem is, you know, you wake up at 3 a.m. or whatever with from a weird dream and you know it's a dream. But you want to get back and finish the dream. But you know mm. it's a dream and it's like, okay, I got to get out of bed because that dream was too real for me. I need to bring myself back to this reality because that one was really, it's, um, I, I found that especially recently, dreams are really uh, much more vivid than they've ever been. And I've never really thought about drawing them. So I, I probably have enough sketchbooks to supply this part of my city. So maybe I'll put one beside <laughs> my bed. <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's a great practice um and that was the thing i had learned from a friend um who was interested in lucid dreaming and he and this was in my my university days um i i had this group of friends that i made up with on a friday night and i would say his place and he he told me about the idea of dream journaling and that when you wake up and the dreams are most fresh and you're still kind of there um, that that's the best time to kind of put them down because I imagine this is perhaps a, a universal experience that as you enter the day, they start to unravel. And it's like, I had some cool dream, but all the details just kind of leave. And for a while, I, I was in that practice of, of writing down the dreams. And it was as in the writing, it was like, and oh, yeah, and then you remember things. It's like, and that happened. And that was, that was so weird. And then that happened. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think... There's, there's so much inspiration to draw from in there. Yeah, quite literally, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, um, I, you know, I've always kind of considered dreams to be an artifact of our, our mind moving things from short term to long term memory, right? But mm -hmm. I, I like to think they're much more than that. So, mm. and, and I think that's why we forget them, because it's not in memory anywhere, right? It's, it's kind of in the computer until, you know, something else overwrites it, which could be breakfast or getting the kids ready for school or whatever, yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah just totally distracted with some of these topics but it's, uh, i like going down rabbit holes so yeah it's, you got. yeah i'm glad uh, i'll follow you down the next one too if you'll follow me <laughs> excellent you end up with this degree in australia did you move into industry at some point and what industry would that be beekeeping <laughs> i finished um university i was like oh i don't want to do that <laughs> and uh, and um and then I was like, oh, what could I do? I, I don't want to sit at a computer. And that's basically what that job is. Um, and I was like, I need to I need to be outside. And then I was wondering what I was going to do. And I had reconnected with a family friend. And he called me one day and he was like, yeah, we met. And I was just wondering, do you want to do beekeeping? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'll do beekeeping. <laughs> so I went from um, concluding my architecture studies to beekeeping and spent a season in Australia. Uh, tending to bees so i i actually never i've i've never worked in architecture yeah i Another. have i've done lots of things so the many faces of dylan that you mentioned earlier there are <laughs> i have quite an interesting cv <laughs> interesting i mean i love bees um 
I've I've learned a lot about them just mm. in drawing them and painting them and having them around here and giving them the sustenance they need. Yeah. By uh, so, how long did you do that for? I did it for almost a year in Australia, and then when we first came back to Germany. So Kira, my wife, and I lived together for two years in Australia, and then we returned to Germany. And the first weekend we were here, we went to a farmer's market, and I started chatting with the beekeeper. And he was like, do you want to work with me? <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so then I, I did another season with him as well. But it's, it's really a physically demanding job. Knochenarbeit uh, is the German term, bone work. Oh, wow. you, really, you really feel it because it's a lot of heavy lifting and it's, it's beautiful being in nature um, and just being outside with, with the bees. But a lot of it is like the honey extraction and packaging. And, and, and I saw from both of my, in Australia and in Germany, my beekeeping bosses, that it was, it was all consuming. And I was like, oh, I, d I think long term, this is not for me. And then I, I had drifted for a long time. I kind of didn't have much orientation. But it was actually in Australia around the time when I was beekeeping. When I was 28, I'd had a bit of a, a crisis wondering, what am I, what am I doing? Because I had done so many different things. I finished architecture, but then I didn't want to do it. And then I was like, what am I actually going to do? And I just spent a lot of time biking and walking and wondering what I want to do with my life. <laughs> Because I had been traveling for four years and it was amazing. And then I went back to Australia and I was inspired when I came back. I was like, I'm going to finish this degree and then I'm going to do something with it. But once it was finished, I was like, I don't want to do that. And so I, I had quite a, a very, it's like the river of life had come to a backwater. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, what, what's going on? Like, it, it didn't feel good. I was very confused about what, what I was going to do. Wow. And, that, and that actually led to... Um, back to art because Kira, my wife, asked me because she was witnessing, um, she had seen the, the free spirit that I was when I was traveling, when we met. And then I was just kind of, although externally everything seemed good, I was just like, what's going on? And um, 28 years old, there's a thing called Saturn Returns where Saturn is actually in the same location it was in, in relation to Earth when you were born. And every 28 years, Saturn comes back around. And so this was my Saturn Returns experience, oh. that if, if you're on track with the thing you want to do, then it's like, it can be really affirming. But if you just kind of don't know what you're doing, <laughs> or you're on the wrong track, it can be a really hard phase. So that's what it was for me. But it led to, Kira was like, what, do you, what, could, what would you like to do more than anything else? And it's like, and I, we had been watching The Lord of the Rings. And I was like, I would like to do fantasy illustration. It's just like, well, if you have such a specific answer, um, <laughs> yes. then then how about you do something in that direction? Because I had just been kind of skipping from thing to thing and doing whatever job came my way. And she's like, well, if there's something you really want to do, and there's kind of no obstacles uh, apart from finding the path to do it. And then coming back, when we did come back to Europe, that was part of my process. And um, I was like, okay, now I had this mission, even though I was beekeeping, I knew I'm beekeeping, but I'm drawing. And it was so that was like when I was 28 years old, that it became a conscious thing. Like I always had the sketchbook with me, I would draw my dreams sometimes. But then from then on, it was like, okay, now I'm now I'm actually learning to draw. So it had become, it had always been a thing I liked doing on the side. 
but I don't think I really identified with it. And but then it became this conscious focus. It's like I had been drifting and had a lot of beautiful, magical experiences, traveling and whatever. And then um, it's like, okay, now this is the thing I'm going to do. And how am I going to do it? And how am I going to walk that path? How am I going to learn? And that's what I've been doing now since then, um, concentrating on that, um, learning and acquiring skills and practicing. Yeah. So are you doing this? Did you work for anyone else? Did you just take this on yourself and start generating kind of illustrative work that you're selling like is what's that journey been like (laughs) so the first when we were still in australia i was like do i go back to university and do could i do a master's in illustration and that was a consideration because we knew we spent two years in australia and it's like we're going back to germany because kira wanted to be closer to her grandmother her oma who was um, getting quite old so we knew we were going back and it was like okay maybe i could start a new um i could do some further education in Europe. And then I was looking for um, masters in illustration. And then Kira actually was looking it up as well. And she found the illustration masterclass, which is in Amherst, Massachusetts, organized by Rebecca Gay. Now also uh, Rebecca Leville Gay. And she put together this all-star group of fantasy illustrators who come to this college campus and uh, for a week in summer and teach fantasy illustration oh wow and then Sakira so actually found it and she showed me this and she was like what about this does this look interesting and I was like oh, this is like <laughs> th- it had all of these superstars that I had loved for years and I remember I had their books in high school when I was um yeah for, for part of my art classes and stuff and I was like, these people are actually going to be at this place, like teaching people how to do what they do. This is mind blowing. So rather than going back to university, I went to the illustration masterclass. So we went to Germany and I had booked the illustration masterclass in the States. So I went, saved my money as a beekeeper. And then I went over to the States to learn to draw for a week. <laughs> and, um, and then I came back. And when I came back to Germany, wondering how do I keep this momentum? Like I've learned so much. It was so inspiring. It was an incredible week. It was like a year's worth of education in a week. And about the like the craft and what you actually need to be able to create an image, um, which was a big thing that was missing for me. It was like, how do you even learn to draw? I don't know how people draw. They do it amazingly. The people that inspired me, I was like, I'm down here and they're up here and I don't know how to get there. And in this week-long immersion at the Illustration Masterclass, it, it felt like, oh, that's how you do it. You just have to put in a lot of work and these are all the steps. And that's how it kind of it had filled in the blanks of how, how to reach that place. And then I was wondering, how do I keep that momentum going? And Rebecca sent out an email to everyone who'd been and said she was offering a mentorship for six people. And I jumped on that. And basically everything I was earning as a beekeeper <laughs> was going into my um, furthering my um, artistic ability. So I did a mentorship with Rebecca for a year and a half and I was doing my work and I, I stopped beekeeping and started doing something else. But um, it was always in aid of drawing. And so all of my free time and basically whatever I earned was like invested in learning uh, the skills at that time, I thought to be a fantasy illustrator, which I have never been. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, 
You train well for things you're never going to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I have a job. Um, like I've had a few things recently where I've had to draw a building. I was like, this is why I studied architecture. <laughs> because in this job, I have to draw a building. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. So were you starting to do like commission work? Were you starting to do work at some point and yeah. leveraging that? At the same time, I was doing youth work. So I stopped beekeeping and I started doing youth work where I live. And so I was doing that half time. And the rest of the time I was drawing and Rebecca would give us assignments. And I, I through through interesting turns of events, I got in touch with someone who had a magazine where we live and they were like, oh, maybe you could draw for our magazine. And so my first commissions were through that magazine. And um, interestingly, now I don't do a lot of illustration, but he has been from from that moment. He's been like my main illustration client for like my yeah my main ongoing client now for like ten years, wow. and and that has been amazing. Thank you so much, Maui, <laughs> um, because I would. In, in different contexts, there was there was a magazine and then he left the magazine, but then he was doing other things. And he was like, oh, maybe you could join this project and do this as well. And for a long time, it was like, I would draw whatever people wanted me to draw. And and it was often the case where I'd meet people uh, and they'd be like, oh, you can draw. Could you do this? I'm like, yeah, okay. And so whatever it was, I would do it. So the illustration work that I've done for him would not be recognizable from the stuff you see on my Instagram account. Wow. It has been very ed- educational and I've learned a lot from it and it's been really wonderful work to work on. But although I would do whatever people wanted, it was always clear to me I really love portraiture. And so I would be, some jobs I've had like uh, these illustration jobs or paint, painting backdrop for a theatre last year or doing some illustration for an animated video for an insurance business uh, or whatever it was I was doing all these things and each each time I enjoyed it enjoyed it and felt like I was learning from it and I, I really am convinced that whatever we practice when we're attentive and give ourselves to it that it contributes to the the ongoing learning that we do so whenever I had a job whatever it was it would be like this is giving me the opportunity to get paid for doing what I like doing. And I can practice these skills that I've learned, whether it's composition or experimenting with color, these different things. But all the time it was like, the thing I loved drawing most was faces. And a few years back kind of had the insight and another conversation with Kira. And she's like, what do you, where do you actually see yourself going with all of this stuff? Because I had thought fantasy illustration, or maybe concept design, or maybe kids' books, or editorial illustration. And I just tried out so many different things. And then we we were away together and walking on the beach and really just kind of brainstorming, thinking about things. And it's like, well, I, I'm most interested in drawing faces. I'm interested in people. I really appreciate connecting to people. And faces is what I enjoy making uh, artwork of most. And then it kind of things started to solidify as like, if that's what I really like most, then perhaps I should put more effort and um, kind of steer my path a bit in that direction. And that's it's an ongoing practice <laughs> because it's it's been like this juggling thing because I've been self-employed. And so it's like wherever the money's come from, it's like, hey, can you draw this thing? It's like, of course I can draw that thing if you're going to pay me for it. <laughs> and yeah, and having kids... So it was the birth of our second child where I was like, I'm going to go full on to illustration now 
and no other jobs. So that's been uh, seven and a half years that I've just been living from art. Wow. And uh, the good graces of my wife, <laughs> who has been very supportive as well. And yeah, it, it has built up continuously going from these... Um, it's been very non-linear, I would say. <laughs> it's like, where where is... From from the amorphous cloud of possibilities, it's like this thing arises, and it's like, oh, I could do that. Oh, I could do that. But uh, from amongst that, I have more and more been able to focus on what it is that I love, what I can do best, because I have applied myself to it most, which is portraiture. With that kind of uh, concerted effort, being able to create my current um, situation where I almost only do portraiture, and I actually rarely sell a portrait but I'm living from it. Um, so it's teaching and um, murals. I was working on a mural today. And I do sell my work if anyone's interested. <laughs> but um, teaching has been a big thing the past few years. And yeah, and that's been really interesting and rewarding. And especially the community aspect of it has been because I'm interested in drawing faces because I'm interested in people and the community building that I have been blessed to be able to um, participate in the past three and a half years has been very rewarding and wonderful. Yeah, like before we go into the tools, because I want to chat about that, uh, mm -hmm. I was going to, you, you came back to it just then, and that's a question I was going to ask you, because it seems that networking and connections has been so critical for you through your career to this point, right? Definitely. And I think that's something that a lot of creatives overlook. And I think that's what you expose through the things that you do with YouTube and others, mm -hmm. is that people may come for the portraiture, but they stay for the connection. And mm -hmm. uh, I think more artists need to foster that that opportunity for us. It doesn't mean, like, I'm an introvert. I, I do not like big groups. I don't like that at all. But that doesn't mean you can't network. And mm -hmm. yeah. I, th I think that you've empowered people to do that, right? Even if it's the person sitting beside them on a Zoom call, mm -hmm. uh, virtually. Yeah, interestingly, in my Zoom session, which I do every Tuesday, which I did for two hours just before jumping on the call with you, I think it was last week, I asked, how many people in this call are an introvert? And about half of the people were like, I'm an introvert. I'm like, what? You're always chatting here, sitting with us, and you come every week. And it's been really interesting, just just that idea, because a, a lot of creative people are on their own, doing their thing, focused on their work. But I have experienced that also those who consider themselves introverted um, benefit from the community and enjoy participating in the community and being part of it. And as far as networking goes, yeah, it's all sorts of amazing, unpredictable things have happened just because I met someone. And, and you talked about what you did, like you, you arrive yeah. at that market in Germany talking about bees and hey, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know more than the average bee person, right? Yeah. 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 Or some of my... Um, some really good jobs that I've got have been because of parents from kindergarten and like just dropping off the kids and like, you know, just kind of the, the daily chit chat and they know that I draw and do illustration. And then one guy was like, oh, your drawings are great. You should meet my friend who's a graphic designer. And, and I just had a meeting this morning for a pretty amazing job, which I can't talk about. But it's because years ago, this kindergarten kid's dad introduced me to his friend as a graphic designer and and a couple of weeks ago that graphic designer was like oh you should talk to my boss because he has this vision and um and it's uh, yeah it's 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 all about just connecting to people i mean that's that's why we're here yeah is, is yeah we're connecting, right? so, yeah, yeah definitely 
and who knows may what happened and it may happen in five years either between us or because of this it's, yeah uh, it's exciting yeah. right yeah it's it's a, a beautiful part of um these are all really genuine connections like all these online things i, I remember having this phase where i was like oh it's it's digital it's online like it's not the real world but then it is it's it's so real it's important to also be in the real world to go outside and it's beautiful that you do so much um nature illustration and i think that connection to nature is a very important and healthy essential thing to have but what this technology enables us to do and the friendships we're able to to make and to to foster is is such a, a wonderful thing to realize that we are we're in this together <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. It's, uh, and, you know, hats off to you for being so successful as you've been in the last, uh, you said seven, seven and a half years. And half of that would have been pandemic time. And to yeah, be able to yeah. pull it off during that is, uh, that's I've been, I've been most successful in the pandemic time. <laughs> it's actually, it was like that first year when it's like, now it's just illustration. And it was some illustration in crickets. <laughs> and, it, and it was kind of like, is this going to work out? What's, what's happening? Where, where, where are the jobs going to come from? But I had, yeah, I'd reached a stage. I had actually done some friends were like, you should do live streaming. And this was in 2019. And I'd met with some friends and they're like, look, you could do this. You could like draw and, and explain the whole live stream idea. I was like, oh yeah, that's interesting. And then once, once the pandemic hit and everyone was live streaming, I was kind of primed to do it. And that was so important that community like in the time of social distancing to spend time together and that's what i've done every week i've actually sat and drawn and talked with people and we realized all over the world that like oh we're sitting at home social distancing together and we're drawing together and also in that time um a really key part of it which was so good for me and my family and i was able to share was making natural inks and i offered that class in 2020 via the sketchy art school and although people were like locked inside, I was like, just go out to your garden or the driveway or on your walk down the street and surely there's something to forage and just cook it up and see what happens. Maybe you can paint with it. <laughs> and that was a really beautiful thing in that time to be able to, all of the pictures you can see behind me are nearly all natural ink um, oh, wow. portraits. And that in that time where people were kind of shut up inside, not sure what was going on in the world, I was able to pass on things that I had learnt, which got people outside making their own art supplies and connecting because they were doing it together in the context of this online class. So there was the forum or like, oh, what did you use? How did you get that color? And that was a, that was, that was like another, a tangent, the <laughs> um, making art supplies, but the community aspect of that was also really a wonderful unifying thing. So let's, let's get to that after I ask you about your other tools, because mm -hmm. I do really want to spend some time on natural links because I've played with them a little bit as well. So yeah, I'm nice. excited. So beyond the pieces on your wall and for people just look on, you know, I'll provide a link to, uh, to Dylan in the, uh, in the YouTube and you'll see it's the same wall. <laughs> you'll see the images, but beyond that is, do you have a medium of choice when you're working? That's a difficult question. I did. I, I had a phase where it was super clear. And it was actually thanks to Rebecca in the mentorship that I, I was very hesitant to use color. Hesitant could also say terrified of color. <laughs> and, um, and when I was drawing, I was mostly using graphite and I was just, had a lot of hesitation. And I remember, I think Rebecca called them furry lines. 
where they're really indecisive because it's like non-committal. And I, I've seen so many people doing this and I did it so much where it was this kind of like, I have this idea and I'm just going to like draw the ghost of this idea that I have, <laughs> that it's like um, this kind of indiscernible lines. And then it was so great working so closely with Rebecca as my mentor that she was like, Dylan, you should work in ink. And, and I was like, really? <laughs> and she was like, get a brush and some ink and try doing your drawings in ink. And, um, and she just like, just threw me in the deep end. <laughs> and it was so beneficial to my drawing. And led to a phase where I, I think I spent about two or three years only using ink. And I did a, a big series of portraits where I was um, painting yoga teacher portraits and I did them all in natural ink. And the wonderful thing about using ink was that and why Rebecca urged me to do it. And it was so beneficial. And that's what I've been able to pass on as well in my classes is that it just teach, teaches such a decisive line rather than hesitating and spending so long because I would I would do a drawing and we would meet once a week in the mentorship and then maybe in the next week it's like this looks a lot like it did last week <laughs> it's just got more of those hesitant lines <laughs> and then the thing is you've got to you draw something and if you don't like it you've got to somehow incorporate it into what into your process it's like well that mark is there now what am I going to do with it <laughs> or you consider your mark making before you make the mark. And that has been that like, that was like a catapult for my development, I think. And, and it was like no, um, no preliminary drawing straight to ink, which is a terrifying thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're if you're used to the, um, the comforts of graphite and erasers, but that that helped me so much. And I did it for years. And I think it was two years ago, through a sketchy 30 faces 30 days challenge that there was a a pencil challenge and I was like I haven't used a pencil for about four years and and then I participated in this challenge and was using pencil but I realized what I'd learned with ink transferred back to the pencil and so I wasn't using an eraser I was more decisive with my marks but there was kind of new opportunities that were available within the context of how I'd been using ink it's like I can use graphite but I can do different things with it and since then, I feel like the last two years, like I've done, I, I do my natural ink wash. Um, I, I work with calligraphy pens. I do a lot of graphite, colored pencil even, and I've done some watercolor. And now, right now, I, I'm not sure I can say what my favorite is, but I think ink has definitely taught me the most. And it has given me, it's really kind of propelled my confidence in my mark making. And when you say ink, you're working, you're applying the ink with like a, a brush or like a fountain pen, a dip pen, or how are you working with inks typically? Yeah, I had a, a process for a while. I, I did like, I think 54 portraits, which were all 30 by 30 centimeters, similar to this kind of thing, which is uh, has a, a lot of tonal value, but, but they were monochromatic. And there I would use a dip pen to do line work because I, I realized that a lot of the strength I, I felt from my drawing came from line work. And so it was a combination of like decisive, strong line work, clear line work in combination with an ink wash. But I have tried out basically all the ways you can use ink. But I found that process. And I think using, trying different things is also super beneficial. 
and I had a um, a friend who was into graffiti, and he was like, "You can make your own pins," and he he would use them out of like like beer cans. He was like, cut the aluminium with some shears and stick it onto a pencil, and and dip this folded piece of aluminium in ink, and it's like this big messy mark, but it it, ha- it has this amazing kind of expressive quality. So b- before I started making ink from natural art supplies, I had made some of these um, just using like trash to make um, pens. So I tried lots of different things um, and also using super black ink. But once I discovered natural inks, I realized like different kind of concentrations or dilutions uh, has this really beautiful sepia quality. Right. So the combination of uh, strong line work and ink wash, I think, is a really um, a process which I really like a lot. So are you are you layering when you're doing that as well? Are you coming in with multiple layers yeah. depending on the the level that you need? Yeah. yeah. So the line work will be like the main kind of intensity and saturation, and to establish the values will be layering. And I that's something which I I find differs from watercolor to ink, is that um, watercolor like rewets and moves around, but with the the way I've been able to use ink, you kind of you put down a layer, and once it dries, like you layer on top of it, and there's there's evidence of the layers before, and I, I find that layering a really um, beautiful process, that you can start really subtly and kind of build upon it and build up your values and finish with the darkest darks. Yeah. So maybe let's talk about the kinds of inks you've made. Mm-hmm. I've made a couple, but I'm so curious what you've played with. So yeah, cool. <laughs> So what what have you done and maybe what's your favorite? I, it, it, I'm not asking you to pick one of your kids here, but what's your favorite? <laughs> um, <laughs> I have no favorites amongst my kids. Um, <laughs> when my sister was over to visit earlier this year, once the kids were in bed, she's like, which one's your favorite? <laughs> it's like, none of them. It's like, go on, which one? Um, so I... You have made walnut ink and mushroom ink, right? Mm-hmm. Have you made more than those? Mm-hmm. No, that's it. Uh, actually, I, I, I made some uh, black raspberry ink as oh, well. Oh, nice. Yeah, cool. That's yeah. it. So good. I wrote them all down once. Um, There's quite an extensive list. The first ink I ever made, and once I started to realize, so what got me to natural inks was I, I was, at the time I was painting an oil, doing big, big paintings. And whenever my my firstborn, there was only one at the time. Whenever he would come home from kindergarten, I was like, all right, put all, we lived in one big room, basically. It's like, I have to put everything out of reach. And I would only work in summer when I could keep all the windows open because of the fumes. And it was just like, oh, this is not very healthy stuff. And then uh, a friend of mine had mentioned natural pigments. And I asked her, I was like, oh, what, what could I use? What, what do you mean by natural pigments, natural inks? And she suggested a couple of things. And one of them was walnut ink. And then I was like, I had previously made a jar of walnut stain for wood. And I was like, I already, I already have a jar of walnut ink. <laughs> so I had, I had made this years before. And I had this, I, I've got a lot of jars right here. So I don't know. I, I had a jar, something like this. And when, when she wrote to me, I was like, what can I, what can I make ink with? And she's like, walnut. I was like, I already have some (laughs) and I had been using it to stain wood. And so I started using that to, to, um, to paint with and play around with that. And then I got a book called the organic artist. 
which I will link to. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very good by Nick Netto. That was, it's such a good book. Uh, Nick Netto has, he's, it's, it's so much more than ink making. Um, it's paper making, book binding. Um, I focus, most of what I got out of his book was the ink making and making your own drawing tools. I have a, a jar of pens over here and I just love sticks. These, But these oh, are all wow. pens. So these are calligraphy pens. They are broad edge drawing tools. It's your little drawing forest. That's you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and this is this I learned from from Nick Netto's book. Um, and they have a really wonderful, like you can make super broad nibs. So huh. you kind of see that's it's like really big. And and I really love um, broad edge drawing tools, calligraphy pens, um, flat brushes, and you can make your own. <laughs> Yeah, that came from the the Organic Artist, which is an incredible book. And there's also one called The Organic Artist Kids. Okay. And there's really fun activities to do with kids in there, like making stamps from beetroot. Uh, you can make beetroot ink. There are a lot of edible inks. So so the two main ones I had was walnut. And then I, as I started using up my jar of walnut stain, I was like, I've got to make some more ink. What am I going to do? I'm running out. And then I got this book, The Organic Artist, and started making acorn ink because um, they grow in great... Uh, oak grows in great abundance where I live in Germany. And then I made like a liter of ink. <laughs> oh, wow. And yeah, and it was so liberating because it was like, I have so much of this. Like I can, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and like when I, when I went to the illustration masterclass and bought my art supplies and I was so precious with them, I was like, these are so valuable. <laughs> I've spent so much money on these and I'm afraid to use them. <laughs> And when I when I had this big like bottle of ink, I was like, I'm not afraid of using this. <laughs> so that was a very liberating thing to be able to be like, oh, I, I have so much of this, such a great abundance, and to recognize that abundance in nature, and to be able to uh, to work with that, and also integrate the experience of foraging with my children, and that becoming like that's what people don't see when they they see these paintings, but it's like. For me, that has become a part of the the piece is also the, the making of the material to create it. Yeah. Um, so acorn ink is a really wonderful dark ink. You can get it almost black or like a really dark brown. So walnut and acorn have been like my main, like really dark sepia kind of inks. I, I'm going to have to try. I've got acorns here and I didn't know because I haven't really researched it that I could make ink yeah. out of it. It's incredible. Um, uh, with acorn, you... You can like just smash them up and cook them up. Uh, you need a lot of water, um, and it's best to have uh, uh, like a, a pot, a saucepan, which is dedicated to ink making. Yes. Um, there, there are some inks that are even edible, but some of them are not healthy, so you don't want to get it mixed up with your food. Um, but yeah, you basically cook up acorns, and then you've got like this kind of, it looks like a milky coffee kind of color, like a light brown. And the, the magical thing is that you, you collect metal. Like steel this, wool or? Yeah, steel wool is great. Steel wool, old nails and screws and stuff. And this is just like, this is also foraged metal. I just have this jar of nails and screws and rust. And you put some vinegar in it and it, um, it, like, it ex accelerates the oxidization. So it's, it starts, um, you get these what's it called, like iron crystals and an iron solution. So it's basically vinegar and an iron. 
And then when you add a little bit of that to this kind of milky coffee color of their acorn ink, um, the iron reacts with the tannin and it just will make like the whole batch almost black. So it goes from being a really pale brown to being almost black. It's it's really amazing. It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to do that with the walnut, but I didn't. And I was I am I'm, I'm sorry I didn't because I was a little bit disappointed with the walnut okay. ink when yeah. it came out. Yeah, sometimes um sometimes if they're too watery, it um it may need to be reduced as well. Because um with some of the inks that I've made, it's like, oh, this is almost like water. <laughs> like I tried to make some with violets, which was really interesting because we had we had a lot of violets growing in the forest. I had like a, a cup full of violets and I, I made this like just a really little batch. And when I drew with it, it was like, it was so pale. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's also an interesting experience. It'd be like, I'm not sure what the applications of this would be. But just getting so intimately acquainted with this plant in in that manner was also a really beautiful experience. And then to to kind of see like, oh, this is there's almost no like it's such a delicate little flower, and although it looks so vibrant, there's almost no pigment to it. When I created mushroom ink and I did some pieces with it, it felt so special. I mean, and people complain about the smell. I don't think you're a fan of the smell, right? Of mushroom ink. Um, it's an antisocial smell, okay. is what I would say. <laughs> so I love the smell because it reminds me of the woods. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a tipping point, I think. Yeah, <laughs> true enough. <laughs> in the beginning, it smells good. When it's fresh, see, it's but good. but you're also talking to a guy who grew up on a farm, and when I smell cow manure, I'm like, oh, home. <laughs> so <laughs> so take great. that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, but I loved drawing with mushroom ink. Mm-hmm. And I did a few pieces. I, I, I drew mushrooms, uh, the shaggy mane ink caps with the mushrooms and uh, with the mushroom ink. So I felt like it was a bit of recursion, uh, you know, drawing them with their own yeah, liquid, yeah. right? Um, and then I wrote a letter to the mushrooms with their ink, and then I buried it in the woods as well. I didn't think the spores would come back because I, I had destroyed them, I think, through that and the alcohol I added, which was cheap vodka. And that's where I wanted to go with this is, are you adding something like vodka or uh, isopropyl alcohol or anything to stabilize each of these inks? Or do you not I, do that? Or? I, the walnut stain, walnut can also smell terrible. But the, that first jar I had, I had put alcohol in it and it had preserved it and it kept really well. But I had a phase where I was like, it's, it's kind of funny because I was like, I, I don't make alcohol, so I don't want to use it to preserve the ink. But then I was using cloves because cloves are antimicrobial. Okay. They also smell wonderful. But I also don't forage and grow cloves. But um, I have them in the kitchen. And that was part of the thing, like using what's available and... Um, there are a lot of great kitchen inks. There's like turmeric, uh, beetroot, berries, and then using something that we have in the kitchen anyway. And I wouldn't say it stabilizes, but it inhibits mold growth. But they can still undergo their, their kind of biological transformation. And so I have got acquainted with mold in a way that I never thought I would. Because <laughs> um, often things will grow on these inks. But yeah, that's what I use mostly is uh, cloves. But I have used... Um, alcohol in in some of my inks and you can also you can make inks with alcohol as like the like alcohol based rather than water based okay and then they be- they behave in a very different way like they evaporate super fast um, whereas I find that the inks that I make they they stay really wet for quite a long time 
um, they'll kind of like pull on the on the paper and if you use alcohol inks it's like as soon as it's left the brush or the pen it's already like it's dry so fast so it's almost like a different medium to work with have you ever added any kind of binder like to, to convert it more from an ink to a paint have you worked with that too not not that solid you can make your own dry pans there there is a different ink making process which is uh, like lake pigments um where you take what is it I, i've got this stuff here somewhere there are these like two ingredients that you add but I, I have i have the ingredients but i haven't actually done it um but it it separates the pigment from the liquid and you can actually dry it and you have the you can make your own like dry pans like watercolor and in that case you can you, you need to use binder and i use cherry sap as a binder because because i can forage it but i have also used gum arabic which is like the classic binder that people use yeah. and even even if it's not paint in with the ink it gives it a different viscosity like it's not as watery it has a different flow as you work with it right and it's a really interesting thing to experiment with because um, some of the inks i would just use without any binder and they they're like intense enough that they they feel really good when i work with them but sometimes it's nice to modify it with the binder yeah so if, if someone's listening and they wanted to make ink mm-hmm. what would you recommend as like so for someone who's made a bunch that is maybe a good experience and and maybe you can define what good experience is with regard to stinky stainy <laughs> easy hard um maybe can you suggest a couple of exercises that people would or not exercises but um stains that people should consider and and i'll, I'll link to the book but um yeah what there's another great another great book called make ink okay those are the two books i would recommend the organic artist and make ink by jason logan but yeah, for anyone listening who wants to try it out, beetroot, or just call them beets, right? Yeah. You just grate them. I, I, this is the most direct. Uh, I love it because it's such a direct pigment that you can make. And it's just like this vivid magenta. You just grate it super fine because you want as much surface area as possible. And then you can just like squeeze out the juice. And, and you can basically just start painting with the juice. You don't even have to do anything to it. So you don't need to get any extra um, supplies. It's safe to to eat. So you don't need your own like special dedicated ink making tools, which if you're really going to get into ink making, I would definitely advise that you have separate utensils for making your ink with. But that's one that anyone can try out. Just get a grater, grate beetroot, squeeze it, and um, put it in a little container and start painting. It does change color. It's a fugitive color. It'll fade, but I I think that's that's also part of the fun of getting to know these colors. It's like how how does it behave? It'll sometimes it's more vibrant on the paper than keeping it in the jar. So it, it has like a shelf life. It'll start to become more brown, and even though it's it has this kind of impermanence, I, I feel like that's part of the the beauty of it as well. And another another liberating thing. It's like I can make as much of it as I want. And it's, it may fade, but then you don't have to be too precious with what you're creating. But yeah, that, that's a really fun one that anyone can try. And another really easy one in the kitchen is you take frozen berries and you let them thaw. This is also in the Organic Artist book. The freezing and thawing process um, like damages the cell structure of the berries. And if you've ever made anything with frozen berries, you notice as they thaw that all this juice just leaks out of them 
which is normally contained within the berry, but you just strain off that berry juice and start painting. This one over here is blueberry, uh, oh. blueberry ink, just from frozen blueberries. I got a box of blueberries in the freezer right near me here. <laughs> yeah, and then you, you, you take the juice and you can still eat the rest of the fruit. Right. It's, it's so good. Make a smoothie or bake with it and, um, and make some art with it as well. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I really, um, and I don't know if there are other inks like this, but what I really liked about the mushroom ink is that, you know, you can use it just wet, like out of the bottle kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah. But then you could pour, pour it into, I have got a deviled egg container that I use for watercolors. And you could put it in there and you can let it dry for three days a week and then reintroduce water as you would paint with watercolors out of the pan. And mm. you could get so much, uh, like a, so much darker as a matter of value. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know if there are other inks that do that because I don't, I I tried that with the black raspberry, but the black raspberry I think had way too much water because I let it dry and it went down to basically nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. I really liked that experience that I could take it out of the bottle or I could reactivate it. And yeah. I've got this wide value range instead of trying to layer it because, and, and I think that's what I liked about the, the walnut ink is it was really it was almost like a non-staining watercolor like it, it really was fun to play with that way you mm-hmm. could lift it off uh, you could really work it yeah um some of the berry inks because they have like a sugar content they become really sticky when they're condensed like that so they're not not really that suitable yeah and if they are if they're too concentrated then um the pa- if you're stacking paper they can also stick to each other <laughs> because of that i think it's the sugar content oh good, good point uh, yeah, as they the more they evaporate, the more intense, like the the pigment ratio. So I'm I'm just looking at some like empty, empty jars of. I feel this. like you got a little bit of a chemist thing going on in front of you here. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's, uh, there's stuff everywhere. It's like oh yeah, there's that. Are you inspired by the people you paint, or are sometimes you more inspired by the ink that you're using? I've got this new ink. I got to draw this, paint something. Like, does it work both ways? Both both simultaneously. But sometimes a beautiful thing, and if if you see the Make Ink book by Jason Logan, it's just ink exploration. It's It doesn't depict anything. It's just like he creates an ink and he really gets beautifully into the philosophy of like being connected to your surroundings and foraging, finding something and extracting this pigment from it. And the work he makes is just like a blob of color. And that is like that there are those moments and I have, uh, unfortunately I can't see them right now, but I, I have these like color tests where it's just like a big, a big blob of color. And then it's like, wow, look at that. And then it's, and then it's exciting to be like, oh, now I'm going to apply that to a portrait. And, um, and if it's, if it's beetroot and it's, I, I really enjoy, um, I feel like using natural pigments is liberating in a sense of like, what color am I going to use? It's like, I'll just use whatever, I can get out of this um, this limited uh, range. Uh, there's a piece that you can't quite see. It's a little bit blurry anyway. But this one back here is uh, beetroot with red cabbage in the eyes. So, <laughs> so it's like it has like these blue lenses in the glasses, and it has this w- wild magenta from the beetroot. Um, and that was really exciting when I was like, oh, because um, I, I just used brown for years. It was walnut and acorn for years. And then I started using berries and trying different flowers and stuff. And then it was exciting to be like, oh, how can I just with these two colors, 
like and this really compelling reference this face like how can i use those in an interesting way and so i i, I think yeah both simultaneously it's really inspiring having amazing reference and great people who who share their photos and stuff and also getting to know the um the material and i feel like my understanding and exploration of material is so it just has a totally different kind of significance with natural inks compared to going to the art supply store and just buying stuff particularly when i know like the place that it came from yeah it's like making furniture out of the tree you cut down in your backyard it's yeah yeah it just can be a real magical experience but uh yeah. yeah and that's beautiful with the the mushroom that you mentioned like drawing the mushroom and then writing a note to the mushroom and it's it becomes yeah it's it just it's like we do this thing we like making images and we whatever it is that our that we enjoy drawing or painting and then you have a, a connection to the person or the place or the object that, that you are you're portraying that there's that there's this interaction with it but then adding that element of being really acquainted with the material you're using is a very special thing. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd say for myself that I've admired the fungi at this point because I've, I made ink with one of them. And uh, every time I go out walking in the woods, we're on a small two-acre lot. So we have all kinds of, kinds of, all kinds of different mushrooms. And so we have morels that come up in the spring and, you know, those just are wonderful to, to eat. Um, and then we have a series of others and the ink caps are really, it's hard to find them around here, but I did have a neighbor send me a message saying, I've got two ink caps because you were asking for them two years ago. I'm like, that's nice. But do you have like 10? Cause that's not enough for me to make a patch, but yeah. it's, it's good that other people are now thinking about this. And I think, um, you know, I was inspired by a British artist who was signing her work with mushroom ink. And I'm thinking, I, I just decided I was going to paint with it. Yeah. And even though the pieces aren't large, um, I do have a mason jar like you do here of uh, a mushroom ink, and I have the walnut ink. So I think this winter I'm going to get back into it. But I I wanted to mention when you're talking about the beetroot that uh, beyond the possible staining, it does mean that if, if there is a parent listening, that it is an opportunity to do something like that yeah. and uh, do it in an environment where it's you're not worried about the fumes or anything like that too, right? Exactly. That was That was another big part of um like moving away from oil painting i was like this is because i'm like this is not good for my kid and actually it's probably not good for me either <laughs> and i lived in a place where there was um it was a very there were only five houses and we had this reed bed uh water filtration so it was like whatever went down the drains stayed where we lived and so and i i would just like save all of my paint <laughs> rubbish and stuff is like what do i even do with this how can i even dispose of this and then when i was like if i make something which is safe it's not hazardous to have around the kids and it can be like returned to the land if i'm if i'm not using it that was really cool and then to incorporate my children into the process and and they love it it's like get out the get out the paper and get them all covered up in something because it stains but it's like okay it's an experience like having a jar of pigment like liquid paint ink to to work with is something that the the kids they have these like dry pans these poster paints that they use and stuff or maybe you've got these little pots of paint but it's just like to have so much of it and to be able to spread it out and and i'll, I'll get out my good paper for them to use as well and yeah i've had some really beautiful moments where the kids uh 
they're eating the berries and they're they're painting with the oh that's fantastic the, the pigment yeah it's, it's a really cool thing to do with kids it's great I would love that if by chance our paths ever crossed in person, that we had kind of some kind of ceremonial ink exchange that we could do, because I think that would be pretty amazing. (laughs) So I want to, and you touched on briefly here when you were talking about references and and people offering up their references, and I think that's probably leaning towards the, the YouTube stuff as well. I'm wondering if you can speak to that and the teaching and the training you've done in a couple of ways. One is to obviously expose this to people who want to to see you as a, as a, a mentor, a virtual mentor, and trying to move their journey forward in, with regard to portraiture, mm-hmm. and and how you're doing that because you know I've had a few artists on here using Patreon, and some struggle with it, some don't, mm-hmm. and I wonder if you could talk to that as to what you're doing and how often you're doing it and how it's working for you. Sure, I I have a Patreon, and I endeavor to do a monthly tutorial, and I do. One to two times a week, I live stream, which costs nothing, but people can buy me a coffee if they want, if they want, or they can sign up to Patreon. And I have my weekly Tuesday Zoom sketch sessions, and they are six euros or pay what you want. And that was born out of um, COVID, and I, I knew a lot of people who were kind of like, well, losing work, and, and it was like, you don't... If you don't have the the resources, then just come and draw with us because that's more important than being able to pay. It's just practicing and being together. Um, so the Tuesdays is, is yeah six euros or pay what you want. You just hang out and we draw with each other, and that's Zoom. There's no live stream. There's no recording of it. It's uh, a live only experience. And there are the live streams on my YouTube channel, and they live on. So Thursdays we have the drawn together show where we have a guest and we draw them and we chat between one and three hours as we're doing portraits of our guest. And then on Saturdays, every other week, I do a two hour live stream where often we'll do timed portraits and we might do 10, 10 minute portraits. I've, I've done that a lot. And I will find some really amazing reference or I'll ask my followers who would like to be drawn and um, every time I do that, I give away one of the sketches to someone who's in the live chat. Um, and all of the live streams are just freely available for anyone to participate in. During the Saturday ones, I have Zoom open as well if people want to hang out and actually chat. And that's really, it's about practicing together. The live streams and the Zoom session is really, I don't focus on the, the actual technical aspects of creating the work. It's just about doing it together. Because I think a big part of improving is actually just doing a lot of it. And um, we can we can do courses and we can learn things and hear things from people, observe things. But just getting in that practice is uh, I have found and to to be a really essential thing to do. And I can remember the time like when I was starting to take drawing seriously, where I would spend a, a month with one drawing and labor and suffer. And once you get a lot of drawings kind of under your belt, you realize you, you don't have to so mu- suffer so much. <laughs> right. And maybe they don't all turn out amazingly, but um, maybe they do. And I think just that consistent practice, practicing a lot is a really beneficial thing. So those are free to anyone who wants to do it. And if people feel like contributing something, then there's the Patreon where I actually do the, the guided instructional tutorials where I'm, I talk through my entire process from a portrait from start to finish, um, I address questions that people have, um, such as uh, 
that was like, how do you draw someone who's not going to sit still? It's like, oh, that's tricky. Um, or how do you draw teeth? Or how do you work with this material? And I'm really open to any suggestions. And I, or sometimes I'll just pick some something that I like or that's relevant to me at the moment, and we'll just do a portrait of that person. So, um, yeah, that's. And if we're talking about like the business sense of thing, I say some people are not sure about Patreon. Um, so that's like the offering. Anyone who wants to participate and learn is free to to do so in that way. And I have uh, I also have some other classes. There's a, a natural ink one um, and portraiture on the sketchy art school, and on the Kara Bullock art school I have a, a class as well. And an interesting thing to touch upon in in sense of art business is that I I'm really happy to share, and I offer a lot and do a lot, and there's a lot out there. And I I feel like it's there are all these different offerings and to make it available for as many people as possible. And for those who want to to go like deeper into the learning and have in, instruction, um, there is an opportunity there and for for a relatively low fee. Like, and and then the courses cost a bit more and there's like a lot more instruction and guidance in there. And I'm actually thinking about doing um, a mentorship as well um, sometime soon. So it's like there's a whole lot available for free for everyone. And and if you really like it and enjoy the work that I do and the way that I offer it, then there are also ways to support me in making the work. And um, and that's that's been an interesting thing to kind of find out because that's been part of the journey. And when I first started Patreon, I was like, this is going to be it. Right. <laughs> and it and it wasn't. <laughs> and even now, it's um, I, I'm so grateful to everyone who has contributed to my Patreon. Um, I think I have 48 supporters at the moment, and it's about 200 euros a month, which doesn't pay the rent, but 200 euros a month is awesome, and it contributes, you know, to to the collective thing. So I, I have a lot of things going on, and although that's you know, it doesn't pay the rent. I feel like it's a really core cool thing to what I'm doing because it's the that offering and the community I feel like is a really important thing to share. Do you feel like you're a starving artist? To get back to no, that earlier no, point you no, had said. No. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And um yeah, and a really and that was the thing after travelling. So I I studied architecture because I didn't want to be a starving artist. And then I travelled around with nearly no money. <laughs> And I was like, maybe being a starving artist is not so bad. <laughs> and then I met someone who was like, you could be an artist and not be starving, but um, you know, live in abundance. And so that is, um, you know, it can take some effort to. I still find it really difficult to sell myself, and probably part of the reason I enjoy offering things for pay as much as you want, because um, I, I have benefited from such things in the past, and I like to make it to, available to as many people as possible. And there's like, there's no. I, I don't I don't have to like check who's signing in. It's like has this person paid? Or it's just it's open. People can come and go, pay what they want. Right. Um and that can be nothing. If if people feel that they don't have the, the funds then or whatever their situation is. And they're still as welcome to join as anyone else. So there's that offering. But when it comes to like and this is a thing at the moment, I, I have so much work that I've made and sometimes people have written to me and it's like how can I buy your work? I was like what piece do you want like it's not easy to buy my work although i would be happy to sell any of it <laughs> but there's um 
I find it really difficult to to like sell my work. Um, to have it leave your house? No, or, I'm ju- or not just atta- the actual process of taking a photo, putting it up on a site. Is that what you mean? I don't know. Asking money for okay. my work. There are certain there are certain things when I offer a service, or I'm like you're doing this and it costs this. But like with my work, I have an idea um, of how much I think it's worth. But it's it's like this moment, and maybe other people have experienced it, where when people are like, oh, how much does that cost? And then your eyes just drift away, and it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it's, in that moment i find it really difficult to just be like this is how much my work costs yeah because you get that number um, immediately in your head and you're thinking i wonder how they're going to react to this number <laughs> yeah yeah and i've had so many experiences i guess where um i have i've made a quote for a job or um, whether it's illustration or whatever and then people are like oh that's a bit much but then sometimes people are just like oh really okay <laughs> like oh that's all <laughs> so it's different from person to person but a current project I have is um, to make, just to put a shop onto my website where I, I have, I don't know how many kilos worth of work, um, so much, um, almost everything I've ever made, I still have. Um, and I'm not actually attached to any of it. I'd be happy to sell it. But that's um, that's a part of the business, which I... Have you ever considered, like, maybe you have, like art markets or something like that locally where you would just take a bunch to uh, whatever and, and put them up for sale, put them in a little plastic, whatever. A friend of mine um, mentioned one in Berlin, which is not super close to where I live, but I'm, go- I'm going to something on uh, in October where I'm going to be doing live sketching. Maybe I could take some of my pre- pre-drawn drawings as well. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, uh, you know what? I, what I really love, and it's probably maybe maybe it's easy, maybe it's hard, but I love the stories behind the pieces, and mm-hmm. I think that's important for people, for artists to include. Yeah, and, you know, just because then there's already a loose narrative for that piece beyond people's observance of what it is. So they they may look and say, "Oh, that's a wonderful painting of of this woman." Um, and whatever, and then you can chime in with, actually, that's done with this, and it happened here, and there's a whole kind of secret narrative behind it, and I love that part of art, right? That, yeah, the story. Yeah, and that's interesting. Um, and you mentioned about the the gathering references, and something when I started teaching online classes, every time I teach a class, I if it's someone who's alive, I try to get in touch with them. And be like, oh, I'd love to teach, uh, do a tutorial using your portrait. Um, and is there anything I can say on your behalf? And actually, because I experienced that a lot where I would do an online class or something and there'd be some beautiful reference and be like, who is this person? And I've, I've even participated in things where like, the, the person, and this is like, this is no kind of judgmental thing, but I feel like it's a lost opportunity if you, if you don't know who you're drawing. And it's like, oh, I found this really beautiful... What what is it? Creative Commons. You're allowed to use it, um, Unsplash or Pixels or something. But I have done things where then I've done the drawing and I've like Google image searched the reference photo and I've found the person who we were drawing. And then I I got in touch with them on Instagram. I was like, oh, I did your portrait. And and they were super happy. And it was like, if there's an opportunity, even though it's online and maybe it was a model for a photo shoot or... Or maybe it's um, like most of the people I draw, I know them in some way. Um, and it can be online. Uh, we can be friends from a, some online community, a reference sharing community or something. Or I find them on Instagram and get in touch with them. 
And that being able to say something about the person who's being drawn, I feel, because portraiture, like we we connect to faces and we see faces, we see our, we see our own face and in a, there's something really interesting. Like each face has a story and a person behind it and a life and a wealth of experience. And even if we just get to know like a tiny little bit of that, and even without knowing any of that story, I, I still feel like we can have a genuine connection, but it's just a wonderful opportunity to be able to actually know that person and connect to them and maybe even like show them the piece that you did. And yep. yeah, so that um, it's, a, it's a wonderful opportunity to, to establish that connection. Yeah, I think uh, I don't, I think I've drawn three people. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't done many. So I, um, but I do experience that with the animals I draw because there's, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have that connection with some of the animals where I know, like I, I did, I had done a presentation to a um, watercolor s- society here and I got to a piece I had done, which is two monarch butterflies on a purple coneflower echinacea. And I had done that for my oldest for her 16th birthday because we, we've raised monarchs for 10 years and uh, we set them free. We kept, we, we collect their eggs or their caterpillars and then we, we kind of raise them and we feed them milkweed each day and then we release them, right? And we feel like we're contributing back to the population of monarchs. Yeah. And so I drew this for her, but I was describing it in the, in the presentation and I got teary-eyed because it was an emotional moment for me. These were two that she had raised. They were a male and female on the same flower. And so that was kind of special. I called it first date, Mm -hmm. but in actuality, they were probably brother and sister, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, it, it is, I look at a lot of the pieces that I have and most of the pieces I draw are almost all are, I should say that quite a few of them, large percentage are photos I've taken either around my yard or around my region, um, or at local places where they've got some more exotic animals. And there's always a story there. And I just love hearing the story. It's the same with photographs, right? I mean, you have these wonderful photographs, especially the the, the photographers that had shot stuff during, you know, Vietnam and and mm-hmm. uh, the World Wars, where there's, there's so much context and story that the real artist is the one that can expose that point in time to either side of it to be able to present the past and, and, and the future of that image in, yeah. in the way it's rendered. And I, I think we can do that as... As, as painters and, and draftspeople uh, that we have that, uh, you know, when you can observe that you've got that potential to be able to show that rather than it just be a single frame, if you can build that kind of movement, that gesture, that, that light off the eyeglasses that suggests that something else is coming, then that's kind of exciting. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about portraiture because you did talk about something and, you know, I, I've seen you do it on YouTube as well, where you do these little short segments right where it's like okay we're gonna do this for a minute or five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever the case so mm-hmm. w- maybe just speak to that quickly and then we're gonna get to the homework but I, i'm wondering if you can speak to that exercise and and for somebody who hasn't done it before why the heck would you do that and kind of what are the time intervals yeah this is going to tie in very well to the homework actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i do a bit of it on youtube tuesday is my tuesday sessions is we only do that, where we we do a warm up. Um, on YouTube, we we'll do a, often do a warm up um, during at the beginning of drawn to, drawn together, where we just do a, a short, just just to get the juices flowing. 
and I have a daily practice and so it's like I'm I'm kind of always in it but I I know that if I'm going to do something longer um, that sometimes it helps and if people have not drawn for a while uh, not everyone is in a situation where they have a daily practice and if you if you want to do something which you know okay I've got time for this it's going to take a while just to do something to kind of loosen up a bit and I, I have found that really uh, invaluable and what we do with these warm-up poses well, I'll talk about Tuesday because this is like the this is the core practice that I've had for over three years now is that once a week we do these sessions where we have two hours and by the end of two hours we have drawn 26 portraits and <laughs> um, so we do five 30 second sketches and this is all of people who, who are posing live on zoom um five 30 seconds five one minute five two minutes five four minutes and then the first hour is finished and we've already drawn a lot of faces <laughs> and then the second hour we do six minute poses and yeah and then by the end of it within a two hour time frame we have drawn so many faces and they may not all turn out well <laughs> but that's part of the the reason for doing it is because it's like oh, i only have 30 seconds this may look terrible and that's okay <laughs> And I, I think a, a recurring theme in my practice has been doing like liberating practice. So you, I find working with ink was terrifying, but liberating. Making my own art supplies was liberating. And doing this timed, really quick drawing was also liberating because it's like, I can't do anything good in 30 seconds. <laughs> and because I would sit, you know, these moments of hesitation where it's like, I don't, I don't want to ruin this. <laughs> I, I remember this painting I did. I, I went to the illustration masterclass twice. The first time was amazing. The second time I, th I felt like I had learned something and I didn't want to destroy what I was doing. And I like just sat in front of my painting for days, almost doing nothing, like really minimal, like changing a bit here, changing a bit there. And I was so precious with it, so afraid that I was going to ruin this beautiful ideal which I had, which I was striving for. But then doing these things was like in 30 seconds, it's not going to look good anyway, so I can just start drawing. And you start to loosen up in a way. And time is so elastic that once, you time, once you get, you've gone through all of these sketches and you get to the six-minute drawings, it's like, oh, you're really, you're really in the flow. And things can happen in a very limited time constraint, which you wouldn't perhaps have expected. And, and it's just a really great opportunity to, to see a lot of different things. And I feel like all of this is also in, it's become an art form of its own, but it's also in service of a longer piece. And that was something in my portrait painting. Um, when I did these kind of things, initially, I'd spend like five hours on a portrait. And the initial drawing phase was super important to me. But sometimes it it was so stiff and I was like so afraid of like not doing it right and doing all of this really quick practice has made that beginning uh, a more relaxed and decisive and that initial process for me has become a lot stronger um, it's become more of the piece than, than it used to be 
So it was like the the life because we, we always make mistakes and it's like we have these you don't have much time. So the likeness is, is maybe not even going to be there or it might be a bit off, but that's OK. And just learning to accept those things being like, that's OK. Like it still looks cool, even though it doesn't look like that person and just getting collecting all of this experience and having drawn so many faces has been hugely beneficial to my practice. And that is something that I like to offer with these warm-up exercises. So when when we do like one warm-up drawing that takes 10 minutes on YouTube, that's like a, that's a pretty generous amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel that, that that's a little bit that it's like, I would like people to experience like, you know, you don't need five hours to do a painting. Right. Or and if you do, that is great. But you can also squeeze your practice into like, sitting in the waiting room at the doctor or waiting for a bus or um it's like oh i've you know i've just got a few a little bit of time to kill it's like i could draw something because i i used to have this block or i would think i need hours and hours to do something and um part of the gift of having children is that you don't have much time right. <laughs> and and when there was time it was like okay now i've got to do something and um and that kind of time practice has really it's it's just meant so much to my work so yeah that's why that's why i get people doing those uncomfortable things <laughs> <laughs> well i think and i may butcher this but you know there's some saying right that uh, that perfection is the enemy of progress or something similar mm. to that and uh, it's yeah. it's very true and i i agree like i've spent 45 45 hours on a graphite piece but now I much more enjoy sitting in a cafeteria during my day job and drawing for 30 minutes or 40 minutes yeah, and seeing what I can pull off. It's not uh, six I've, minutes, but... <laughs> yeah. I've spent... I remember this one painting I did and I, I spent over 100 hours on it. And um, and it was it was wonderful. and But I don't know if I like it more than some of my drawings that, you know, took a fraction of the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 like choosing a favorite child again, right? It's not that you like it more or less. It's you like it yeah. differently. Yeah. Yeah, the the things you learn through that are probably different than the things you learn in 6 minutes, but it doesn't mean one's better than the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And before I ask you for homework, I want to I want to ask you this. I I asked this question of some of my guests, and just because you're the man of many faces, <laughs> if you had a chance to have a lunch with a fictional or non-fictional person, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, wow, what a question. And I've kind of, I think, uh, I'll let you think about it, but I think I've kind of queued it up just with our interview here because now you're thinking about art and ink and everything else. But I'm, I'm really curious with uh, everything that you've done. Who would that person be? Wow. Oh, it's, it's so big. I have so many answers. But what's coming to me right now uh-huh. is Rick Rubin, a music producer who recently wrote a book called The Creative Act. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that creativity is not only visual art. And in his book, The Creative Act, it is about um, having an open and engaging way to be in life. And that in every decision we make, there's a potential for creativity and for something something to be made. And uh, that book was really amazing. And it would be incredible to, to have the chance to have a chat with him, I think. Huh. What would you ask him? I, th- I think I'd want to hear him talk. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to you, right? Just one on one. Yeah. Wow. Well, so, so many things that he said is so, like so universal. He has said, 
I think he said this thing about the the great work. And I feel like I, I do so many things. And particularly with these like really um, brief images, sometimes I, I don't know what the great work is that I will or maybe am creating. Perhaps the whole collective thing is the great work. Um, but he has this idea where like that for, because he's a music producer, but it's applicable to everything in life. But um, like maybe there will be a, a, a record which is just like the soundtrack to a generation, that kind of thing. Right. And, um, and it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be that grandiose. It could be a really kind of intimate thing or just within a, a smaller community. But like, um, that would be an interesting topic to talk about. Like, what is the great work? And like, it's kind of like everything we do is in service of this, this thing that we might not know what it is, if and when it's going to manifest. But I think it's a really interesting concept because when I heard him talking about it, I was like, oh, what's like, I don't, I don't have a clear goal of what I'm working towards. Um, and I've been meandering, as you may have uh, gathered. I've done a lot of different things and it's kind of like, oh, what's what's going to arise? What's going to be there? And I, I feel like in the past few years, I've gotten a lot more on track. Like I'm really, I'm doing something which I'm really interested and passionate about and I'm able to share it, which I'm really thankful for. Yeah. And I, I wonder, maybe we would talk about that that concept yeah. of, of the great work. Well, maybe he'll listen to this podcast and reach out to you. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, I'd love to have him on, on our show as well <laughs> and drawn together. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Yeah. So I always like to ask my guests for homework. They've they've heard us talk. They've heard about the man of many faces and, and the beekeeping and the natural links and everything else. And it's always fun to have a little bit of an engagement afterwards they can walk away with and try. So I'm wondering, Dylan, what would you recommend as a, a bit of homework or an exercise that they could do? All right. Well, this may make you feel a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm sure it will. <laughs> <laughs> but but that could be good. Yes, bring it on. Um, I, I would... Um, I would like you, should you choose to accept this, <laughs> to perhaps for for a week, try having a daily practice where you do timed portrait sketching. And it doesn't have to be big. You don't have to carve out a chunk of your day. But if you, if you have like a, a little sketchbook that you could take anywhere with you, this is, I have this tiny little moleskin sketchbook. I've got like a few of them floating around wherever I need one. And actually set a timer and start with 30 seconds and then a minute and then two, four, uh, and as many as you like. But I, I would s like you to try that progression and it can be any subject you like, um, whether it's a face or it's just some stuff on your table, it's your kids while they're eating, uh, it's someone else in the waiting room while you're waiting for your appointment. Just to do these short time sketches they they don't have to look amazing but um you may be surprised with what you create by the end of that uh, short time frame and and if you're able to do that each day then you could already start noticing changes in a very short space of time hmm. yep uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> but i love and that it, I love yeah that. and if you're doing it um do you have a hashtag for your show when people are doing their homework? Yeah, so it's a, it's the hashtag is DIFM podcast, so Drawing Inspiration FM. Awesome. I have a hashtag as well, which is Drawing with Dylan. 
And um, so use both of those hashtags. If you want to share your homework, no one has to share anything. But if you feel like it, and um, it may not be your greatest work, <laughs> it may not be the great work, but just putting in um, developing a habit of consistent practice, which doesn't have to be big and daunting over time can be incredibly beneficial. So if you choose to share, then um, use those hashtags and we'd love to see what you do. That would be exciting. Uh, and if, if you choose to be more specific, you could probably reach out to Dylan directly or myself and just um, share that way as well. If, yeah, definitely. I'd, um, uh, I'd love to hear from from you if, uh, if you've enjoyed this chat. Um, so get in touch with us. It's, it's all about connection and community. So yeah. we just created um, another one. So that's good. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so before I let you go, Dylan, uh, where can people find you? I am most active on Instagram. I've been building my YouTube channel as well. On Instagram, I'm Dylan underscore Sarah. And if you look up Dylan Sarah, <laughs> On YouTube, you'll find Bob Dylan videos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look up Dylan Sara Drawn Together, uh, then you'll probably find me. And I think it's um, at Dylan Sara on YouTube as well. Those are probably the main avenues. I have a mailing list where I inform people about upcoming opportunities to draw together, um, my live streams. And then you've got the website as well that we'll link to. I, I do have a website, which is in... Um, which will hopefully have a store on it soon. <laughs> it's it's in need of some renovation. And and we'll link to the sketchy um, stuff that you talked about as well. I'll include links to that in the show notes too. Yeah, cool. Yeah. If if anyone would like to learn together with me, then uh, th- that would be awesome. I'd love to, to meet you and work together. And um, we'll put all that info in. Yeah, if you want to dip your toe in it, YouTube is a really great way to do that because nobody knows you're there. And so it's an easy way to yeah. just the drawn together you and Shannon do uh, with a guest that comes on. And those are fantastic. And you can just sit quietly in the corner as a wallflower and just observe. And then yeah. if you want more Dylan, then there's other avenues to that. And uh, yeah, it's it's good. It's a, I think it's a great experience doing that on YouTube. Cool. I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. It's always nice seeing your name pop up in the chat. <laughs> I try to be quiet, but I figure I got to say a little something. So yeah, uh, but it's it's always a joy, and uh, the conversations. Once again, it's it's about networks and, and hearing from these people. Um, you and and Shannon and your guests is always wonderful. So yeah, thank you so much, Dylan. I wanted to to say thanks. This was. Uh, we went in so many different routes. I, I always I always send my questions in advance, and I always tell my guests, we're not going to get to all of them, and we didn't get to many of them. But I think I, I've, I feel uh, more full creatively having spoken to you, uh, and I feel that this connection will endure. And I thank you so much for what is a late time of day where you are in joining me, and um, I, I really kind of cherish this moment we've had together, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate yours too. And yeah, it's nice to to know you. <laughs> nice to know you as well. Maybe yeah. I, I will draw you at some point. <laughs> we'll ah, see. It'd be amazing. In 30 seconds. <laughs> 30 seconds, right. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll cool. see you on the interwebs at some point. And uh, yeah. appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye, everyone. Show notes, including everything Dylan and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 106. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, then share with someone you think may find it helpful, 
with their creative journey. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 